0: <laughs> The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting
1: heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, Go to gerbergear.com
0: and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the gator premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have.
1: And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to rockymountainhuntingcalls.com or buglingbull.com and use promo code talk and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by gohunt.com.
0: Uh, go to gohunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop.
1: Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course.
0: And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Morning, Randy. How are you? Uh, you know,
1: I'd have to be you to be any better, most likely. <laughs> I certainly have nothing I can complain about, so. Me either.
0: You know, and if I complain, nobody would listen. And my grandma always used to say that if you complain without a solution, you're just sniveling, so. <laughs> Don't be yeah. a sniveler. Exactly. And in my family, the term sniveling gets used a lot. And when people come to our family gatherings and they hear, oh, you sniveler, you whiner, quit sniveling. They look at us like, is sniveling like, is that like one of your code words in this family? You
1: guys use it a lot. And we can thank grandma for
0: that. (laughs)
1: Uh, that's a lot of motivation for a young kid growing up being told you're a sniveller. So it just makes it so you don't complain. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I, so
0: I, I thought about doing some merchandise with something to, to the effect of quit sniveling or no snivelers or something like that with it, with it being elk hunting. Because if there's any uh, endeavor I have in my life, that causes me at times to, Snivel silently to myself. It's elk hunting because I I'm not very good at it, and I
1: I flunk out a lot of times. <laughs> Plus, it's really hard. So, if you're going to have something <laughs> to snivel about, it's probably going to be at the top of the list. Yeah. So, anyhow, I'm not
0: sniveling about tag drawings this year. I'm uh, no kidding. Colorado just came out the other day, and this kind of gets into our podcast last week, or was it last week or the week before? Yeah, the last one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Our last podcast. There you go. Uh, We were talking about point creep in these states, and we used some examples of states that have preference point systems. And since then, you and I got a bunch of emails about people, or from people saying, wow, thanks for – Hitting the reset button on my expectations, I did not realize there were that many people in the system and what the reality of point creep is going to be, no matter what.
1: Um, so, hopefully, there was some value in that discussion. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's the big eye opener for a lot of people. You know, the reality is eight of the ten Western elk states have a point system, so you have to play that game if you if you want to hunt in one of those states. And I think, you know, you and I especially, our platform reaches those who are newer hunters um, just because, you know, that's kind of, if you're wanting to learn, I think my name and your name come up a little bit because we want people out there. We want to teach people. We want people to be successful. And so many of those new hunters send us messages or emails saying, I'm so excited. I just started building points in Utah and I'm going to draw a tag there and can't wait to go hunt with my cousin or, you know, whatever it is. And you hate to be be that dream dasher that says, listen, you don't have a chance. Go go hunt with your cousin in Colorado or go here or go here. But man, the reality is most of these states, if you're just getting in and hoping to draw that hunt that is, you know, where your family camped when you were a kid or, you know, some of these places that just... That reality is you probably don't have a chance of drawing it, but I've got enough phone calls from you in the last two weeks to know that maybe you don't have to have a lot of points to draw hunts. <laughs> well, and I don't mean this to, you know, be
0: rubbing it in people's <laughs> nose who didn't draw, but it, it's a function of setting proper expectations I burned all my points in Colorado in 2016, and I realized, okay, I had chances to hunt in other states while I was building those points, and someday I'm going to burn them, and when I do, I'm going to re hit the reset button in Colorado. So yesterday, I found out by looking at my credit card that Colorado took my three points that I had, and it's not going to be some glory unit, but I'm going to a spot in Colorado that I've driven by, I don't know how many times. But every time i drive by it, I'd look up in those big peaks and say, sometime I'm going elk hunting up there. Well, this is the year. And uh, the point of that is knowing what point creep is in Colorado, I, I'm not going to sit around and wait until I have 40 points again because I'm going to be dead. <laughs> before I have 40 points (laughs) I want to go every two or three years and if you look at the draw odds you can find hunts in Colorado that are pretty good yeah with only two to three points and it's it's a first rifle season and I'm not going there expecting I'm going to see Utah Nevada Arizona kind of old bulls you know there's going to be a younger age class but I'm going to go there, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to learn a lot, I'm going to make some more stupid mistakes, hopefully learn from those, and I'm going out cutting. And that's kind of the message we've been preaching, if you want to say that, for the last few podcasts is these point systems are realities. Make sure your expectations have some reality to it.
1: Yep. So. And in addition to that, don't be completely disheartened because there are still – quality tags that can be drawn with two or three points and when we say quality we aren't talking trophy quality we aren't talking top of the list quality but they're better than an over-the-counter tag Yep. even if it's just you know you're, you're hunting the same number of animals and the same size of animals but there's a limited number of people there. Or, you know, maybe it's the other way. Maybe there's more animals than what you'd find on a normal over-the-counter hunt. So don't be discouraged by the fact that you can't draw these premier hunts without a whole bunch of points and that you'll never get there in your lifetime. There are still good hunts that are worth building points for and drawing every, you know, like you two to three, four to five years. And you can have some great hunts. You have, what, four elk tags in your pocket this year?
0: I do. I have Montana. <clears throat> I drew I mean, people would say, well, you can get Montana over the counter. Yeah, I can. Um But I with three points, I drew a limited entry tag in Montana. And it's one that's kind of overlooked. It's not the highest demand limited entry tag by any means. But I looked at it and said, you know what? <laughs> I can go there and make a good hunt of it. Yeah, there's these issues of public, private, and there's this and that. But if I give it my effort, I can make a pretty good hunt of it, I think. So I have that tag. Wyoming, I I back to expectations. I'm never going to get to the top of the point pool in Wyoming. I've been burning my points every two or three years. And this year, I said, you know what? I've never had a general tag in wyoming If the the non-resident the hunt code is g e n general so i said i'm going to take my two points and i'm going into the draw for the general and i drew so and then i have i went and bought over the counter in idaho so i've got those four elk tags and none of them took more than three points
1: Yep. And those are those are those top four states that you and I always talk about. Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Idaho, as far as those are opportunity states uh, for the most part. That general tag in Wyoming is an over-the-counter tag if you're a resident. If you're non-resident, you have to apply for it. But it is, you know, it's not a a high-quality type tag because it is over-the-counter if you're a resident. But you can draw it with two points. It's still a a good hunt. It's a over-the-counter equivalent type hunt. And so yeah, I mean you you actually showed exactly what we talk about. Go hunting often. And those four states provide you that opportunity. If you wanted to go to a different state every year, you could rotate between Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana and realistically draw or buy an over-the-counter tag for those four states and be able to hunt every year in those four states rotating yep and you know i I might
0: draw a bit of a blank next year just because i'll i won't have any wyoming or colorado points but i'll still be able to do over the counter in idaho if i want to and so i know some people wouldn't do four (laughs) hunts in a year i mean it's obvious this is what we what we do but the point is exactly what you said is to show people that You don't need a pile of points to go elk hunting. You need a plan, a commitment, and some reasonable expectations that fit your budget of time and money, and off you go. And For me, I think I'm going to learn a ton about elk hunting this year. I've never hunted the areas I'll be hunting in Wyoming. I've never hunted the area that I'll be hunting in Idaho. I've never hunted the area I'll be hunting in Colorado. All three of these are like going in blind. I'm going to have to do my e-scouting. I'm going to have to go through the whole process again. And in that process, I'm going to learn a lot in my research. I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes. I'm going to arrive there with my plan that has a lot of false assumptions in it. And I'm going to have to adapt on the fly. And maybe I'll have success. Maybe I won't. But... My bank of hunting knowledge
1: is going to have a, a few more deposits made to it this year. Totally. Before we go completely away from the topic of bonus points and preference points, we did, like you mentioned, we get a bunch of emails in the last uh-huh. week or so. They've flooded in on the bonus points, most of them. you know, And that's the thing. We're not trying to be negative on this. We're trying to be realistic on what the bonus point systems yeah. cause. Right. And hopefully, you know, a three-andy story of four tags this year is still showing: hey, bonus points and preference points still work. You can still draw tags, just be realistic in your expectations and know that if you're going for one of the top-tier hunts, it's going to take a long time. And realistically, you might not draw that. But one of the emails we got was a question following up on that last podcast. And. I'll just read it real briefly here. I have a question about your last podcast, about bonus preference points from past media I've known about point creep, but after listening to that episode and the way you explained it, why would a fish and game agency continue to use that system? Um, we can so that's the first question, and that's well I think mm-hmm. you and I would both answer it the same way. They're locked in now, they don't have a choice. <laughs> right. Yep. Once you once you head down that path, there's not an accident. Yeah, and that's that leads into the next part of his question. That I think we can expand on a little bit, but you know, he mentioned, I'm sure it has to do with revenue, but what would it look like if states stopped using the bonus or preference point system? Tag cost would have to go up to make up for the revenue. How much would it go up? And he said, personally, I'd rather just do away with the system. Can you guys help me wrap my head around what a transition would look like? So, Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> basically, close your eyes, uh, and that's what a transition would look like. It, it just—it can't yeah. happen. Uh, there's no way a state can. Th- there's too many people that are invested for twenty plus years. That if a state went away from a system like that, I think lawsuits. I think you know, just all these things that they can't. That's why we always talk about these these you know, topics that come up. It's a slippery slope because once you go down it, you can't turn around and get back up. It You can't be like, oh, that was a big mistake. Let's backtrack and and go back. Now all these states are starting to try to modify it or change it, and all it does is just muddy the water even more. Yeah, and uh, I'll use some examples of where
0: states tried to modify both one direction and then another. I'll use Arizona. I think it was in... 2007 Arizona said that we're going to, they never used to have this situation where 20%, currently 20% of the tags go into of what they call the first round draw to the highest point holders. It effectively converts your bonus points to preference points. And that's for the first 20% of the tags. Well, that was never part of the system until I think it was 2007, is when that came in. I'd have to go in and look, and someone might fact check me on that. But the whatever date it was, principles are the same. So guys like me who've been buying into the system, and I'm getting close to the top of the point pile, at, you know, on some of these species, I'm thinking, whoa, I I didn't see that coming. Look at this big bonus I got here. I'm at the top of the pile, I end up drawing an Arizona strip mule deer tag because of that system, something I never dreamed of. I, I When I started, I never thought that would happen. So that's a big benefit to me as a high point holder. Well, come, I think, what was it, uh, 2017 16 maybe 17 arizona says well we're going to keep that in place but no more than half of the non-resident quota can be filled in the first part of that draw so now a whole bunch of people who had kind of been trained for the prior 10 years to think hey i'm at the top of the point pool that's really beneficial for me now they're all mad because they're like wait a second You're you're changing the game as we go along here. And, yep, these states all uh, all have uh, some some experience to look to, either in their state or in neighboring states, about what happens when you start tweaking these
1: systems. And, And I think it's really all a result of which group of hunters complains the loudest. You know, so back yeah, in who showed up at the Yeah, so back in 2007, all these people who screamed, "I want bonus points! I want bonus points! I want bonus points! because I want to be able to draw a tag," they realized, "Hey, we aren't drawing a tag. I've I've got 15 points in Arizona. I'm still not drawing a tag." We want you guys to set aside some yeah. of the tags for us who've been standing in line longest. So the fishing game says, "Okay, let's do that. Let's give them. You know, they're they're right. It's only fair. They've been standing in line longer." Let's give them a portion of tags set aside for those with the most points. So they do that. Well, who do they take yeah. from? All the people who have not been standing in line as long, but still have been standing in line for 7, 8, 10 years. So oh, wow. now those are the people who start complaining. Yeah. So in 2017, Fishing Game finally has enough and says, you know what, you're right. We're taking too many tags from you guys and giving them to the guys with the top points. So now we're going to take them back away from those guys and put them back in so everybody has a chance and all they're trying to do is just walk that fine line between trying to please everybody. And in a bonus point system, you can't do it. It just, it doesn't work. Yeah, And,
0: you know, I'll use my state of Montana, for example, we hadn't stacked the deck deep enough in favor of the old gray haired guy like me. So a bunch of old gray haired guys, even grayer than me show up at our Montana legislature and at first, their first request is that the, we carve away a pool of moose, goat, and sheep tags <laughs> for any hunters over 65. Oh, yeah. and, uh, you laugh, but it was a bill that got put into committee. Well, most of us went up there, and it, it didn't even get out of committee. Well, undeterred, that group, then the next legislative session, shows up and says, okay, we didn't win last time, but let's square these bonus points as if that's going to make a difference. When when you're talking moose, goat, and sheep, that's what these people were really focused on, which in Montana, your odds are ridiculously low. Well, if 95% of the people have maximum bonus points, what good does it do to square your bonus points? Because now you're, when you square everybody, we're all still sitting at the same number of bonus points. <laughs> it's like... Really? But what happens is most of these systems can't be changed without legislative approval, and we all know what happens when legislatures get involved in wildlife management. All it takes is somebody who has the ear of their neighbor who's a you know senator, sits on the Game and Fish Committee in the legislature, and all of a sudden here comes some bill to – tweak the system, and you see it every year. I mean, I, I look at your state, Corey, and when the draw odds come out here in about two or three weeks, the forums will light up with requests from some disgruntled Idaho person who wants a point system, and they'll go to their buddy who's a legislator, and
1: you guys are going to have to fight to keep that from happening. It happens all the time, and, and that's the problem. You know, the legislature – They're they're in charge. I mean, they're the ones that pass the bills. They're the ones that introduce the bills. And it doesn't come from the fishing game. You know, a lot of times they'll try to sneak it in. So you get some member of the legislature that is buddies with somebody that has a whole bunch of land that contributed to their campaign. And they say, hey, we've got these giant elk on our land that it's a draw only hunt. And it's not fair. They're on our land. We own 10,000 acres here, and I watch these big bulls, and it's just not fair that I don't get to hunt them on my own land. So I don't, I mean, can't we make it so that we can buy a landowner tag in Idaho, or can't we get a bonus point system so that I'll be guaranteed to draw this tag before anybody else? And the legislature says, yeah, that's a, that's a." the legislator says, that's a good idea. I'll add that to one of the existing yeah. bills that's there as a writer." And that existing bill might be yep. approving a budget increase for the Fish and Game Department for the first time in 12 years. So now they've attached that. So the fishing Game's hands are tied. <laughs> the department's hands are tied. If they reject that because of the, the rider that's been attached to it, the whole bill gets thrown out and they lose their, their funding their their budget increase. And so yep. it's it's really people like to badmouth the fish and game yep. departments. It's usually not them that are making these decisions or putting these decisions out to to be passed. And so we do. We see it all the time that we have to vocally get a hold of not the fish and game, but our state representatives who are in charge of, of voting on these and let them know, hey, here's the real issue. Yes, some rich guy down in the other part of the state that doesn't even have anything to do with our part of the state wants this because he's selfish and it's going to affect everybody else. It's going to affect, you know, recruitment of hunters, new hunters coming in, uh, all these things that somebody who, who just wants to be able to get their own tag is thinking only of themselves and not looking down the line of what the total ramifications and effects of that are going to be. So, you know, don't, don't get up in arms and start screaming at fish and game departments necessarily. It's usually not them. And oftentimes their hands are tied. I mean, literally, we've got to have a budget increase this year. We're we're operating in a deficit. And, you know, that's that's what that question asks. Is it about revenue? Are these point systems about revenue? To a degree I think so, but I think if you asked anybody to make up the difference in tag and license costs over what they would yeah. lose. In revenue from a point system, I think most hunters would be okay with that increase in the tag and license cost because it wouldn't be that much. You know, $6, $10, $15, whatever it is. Yeah, it would be an increase, but it's not the revenue. It's the fact that somebody was selfish, wanted the point system, got it pushed through, passed it, and now can't go back. It's We're locked into it.
0: Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> there's someone's – so his other question – is what would a transition look like? I can rattle off a whole bunch of things that I think would be some transition steps. And I'll use Colorado, for example. They've got landowner tags there, okay? If you buy a landowner tag, if you get a permit in any manner, you lose your points that year. Whoo. Now all of them, because what happens in Colorado, people buy landowner tags and still build points at the same time. Or or buy an over-the-counter tag and still build points. Right. Right. So that could be a possibility. I'm not telling Colorado guys what to do. I'm just saying these are examples. In Montana, we could get rid of the squaring of bonus points. Nevada has an interesting thing where if you draw any of your choices or even if you draw in the leftover draw, you burn your points.
1: So do you see the trend? Do you see the trend in all that? Mm. If we are to transition, we're going to lose opportunity. We have to sacrifice something in order to get back to the way it was originally. Now we have to give up something that we have, whether that is – you know, okay. sitting out of the system for five years or 10 years, whether that is not being able to purchase an over-the-counter tag on the years that we apply for hunts, whether that is, you know, paying more, it comes back to to sportsmen, to the hunters. They're the ones that, once again, sacrifice and, and have to pay the cost. Yeah. I mean, I'll use some examples. Like you in your state,
0: Corey, if you draw, say I drew a limited a controlled hunt for bull elk. I couldn't apply for that same hunt the following year. Or any controlled hunt for bull elk. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, in Montana, I sat on our point committee. Um, and uh, I this this could be another transition. I advocated that we keep half the tags out of the point system and keep them in a random pool, kind of like Wyoming does. They don't do half. are subject to the point system for non-residents and 25% end up being part of the random draw. Well, you could change, you know, you slowly start taking some of the tags out of the point system and putting them in a random draw, kind of like Wyoming does. But one of the things we have in Montana is a seven-year wait period for moose, goat, and sheep. Well, most states, those are once in a lifetime. I think in your state, aren't Moose, Goat, and Sheep are, in a lifetime? Yeah. They are in Utah. Um, I'm not sure about in some other states. But anyhow, you could make those ones in a lifetime. You could say, like and this, I advocated for this when I was on the committee, that with our high-demand bull-out permits, anything that has draw odds, you know, of tougher, worse odds than 10% or 20%, whatever number you wanted to put on it, that there would be a three or five year wait before you could apply for that tag for a limited entry bull elk tag. Because after that, you know, in that other period, you'd have to hunt your general just over-the-counter tax. Oh my goodness. You would have swore that I asked to <laughs> burn the Capitol down or something. <laughs> but there there are mechanisms that a lot of states use that. If, if hunters in their state, and, and I think it has to reflect what the hunters in that state want, it shouldn't be a reflection of what out-of-state hunters want. If you want something changed in your state, back to your point earlier, Corey, the hunters need to be the ones who start working with legislators to totally. tweak, change, or transition this as the person is asking about. And I'm not going to say what it would look like because every state's going to have a different idea about that. Yep. And it should reflect what the hunters of that state want. But there are a ton of other ideas out there. We just, I mean, just a few examples I gave, that's just a small portion of, of what could be done to start transitioning away from maybe the pendulum has swung too far on stacking the deck towards the highest point holders or the old gray-haired guys like me, and the pendulum starts swinging back. I don't know. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. I I have my own personal opinion about it. (laughs) I do think it is. Uh, And I I don't know what it would look like, but there's plenty of options out there.
1: Totally. And like you said, every state is different how they're set up. And so a transition for those states would have to be different for each state. But I do think that there are ideas that would work. Uh, The problem is most of the time these ideas and these proposals are not driven by the general sportsman. Typically, they're driven by a couple of individuals who have the ear of a legislator and they're able to get it in and and push it. And so we do you do have to be proactive if you want to make a change in that state, because typically what happens, these things come flying in under the radar. They get on there and before people even have a chance to comment or really even know about it. It's all of a sudden there, and so I think you know hunters have to start being proactive in these these you know not even just point systems, but anything that affects hunting access, things like that. It's so important to be proactive and to look ahead and think, "Okay, we've got an issue here. What would a solution look like?" And this goes back to what you said about your grandma. Don't be a sniveler. Don't sit there and and say it stinks (laughs) in this state. I hate the way the state is doing this. I hate that. Don't snivel or don't complain unless you have a solution, because then you're just a sniveller. So, think of a solution. Get input from people. You know, yeah. I think that you know, for me especially in Idaho, I would love to be involved with looking ahead at what hunting opportunity looks like. And, and our fishing game, to their credit, does a really good job with surveys, with with polling people, with getting ideas. Um, I think that our fishing game department is very much uh, on the side of the hunters and works to get information, to get hunter involvement, to get hunter feedback so that when things like this come up or to be proactive so that they don't even come up. But I think they've done a really good job. And I think that hunters just have to be involved with the departments, with the legislator and all of that and be the ones setting the pace setting the direction rather than sitting back and waiting for somebody to come in and propose something and then fight against what's been proposed i think it's that that's that's one of the biggest changes that, that we have to see as hunters is we've just been so passive for so long that it's time to start being forward thinking moving in the right direction and helping set the tone and the and the direction of where things are going Yeah. And I know some people hearing that are going to say, well, I don't know where
0: to start. I don't know what to do. I don't have time, whatever. Well, a lot of times you might have a group that you could belong to, your state bow hunter association or your local rod and gun club or whatever. And they usually have some people in those memberships who go to legislative sessions and testify on behalf of the rank and file hunter. So. There are places and options, you know, getting <laughs> on Facebook, hammering on your keyboard and posting a meme usually is not going to have much impact no. on the the future that you wanna see. <laughs> so those those are places that interested people can can exercise, and, you know, you can go there's nothing more fearful to a Uh, a legislator who doesn't have your interests in in mind then when you and five or six of your friends show up well informed and determined they're like oh no i'm not going to be able to slip this
1: one under the rug (laughs) Yep, (laughs) i can justify it to myself but there's no way i'm going to justify it to the masses so yeah so never underestimate
0: the power of what you and a few friends can do in a state legislature. And, you know, sometimes that comes through your local rod and gun clubs or other state associations, but you can make a difference and you can help craft what that future is. And I, like you were just saying, Corey, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be an issue about these point systems. It could be an issue about, you know, keep the legislature from mingling in our season settings, keep those... Keep the legislature's hands out of this, or out of that, or wh- whatever it might be. Uh, you can make a difference. Yep. So, well, with all that, well, we've uh,
1: we've we've kind of
0: transitioned. That was one question,
1: Corey. <laughs> yeah, and it it kind of. Uh, let's talk about elk and elk hunting. Like, yeah, let uh, okay. find one of those. Questions. I'm going to ask you this one because this okay. this is
0: an archer, and everybody knows. that if they send the elk talk podcast, a question about archery hunting, they're probably going to get the good answer from Corey and some colorful commentary from Randy. (laughs) Uh, This one has to do with the person from who's thinking of coming to Colorado. And he's laying out the scenarios for September of 2021. It looks like that's when he's going to be able to go. Uh, He studied the fall equinox date and the moon phases, and this is what he's saying. The scenario for this question is this. September 6th is the new moon and only a few days after the archery opener. The black powder hunt runs from September 11th to the 19th. Full moon hits on the 20th and fall equinox hits the 22nd. I can pretty much go anytime I want in the month of September, and I have the flexibility to hunt for nine days. Given the conditions I've explained, what would be your preference on the days to hunt? Would the black powder season keep you out when hunting with art, out of there from hunting with archery equipment, or would you just wade in amongst them?
1: Hmm. So before I dive into all that, I'll just say – Colorado is one of the most difficult states to pick a week to hunt for archery. And the reason why, you've got the early part of the season, which you're taking a risk of heat, you're taking a risk of elk not being vocal. You've got the middle of the season, which generally would be the, the time that I would suggest if you had one week or 10 days to go, I would always look to that middle part of the season. But in Colorado, that you know, the, basically the middle 10 days of the month, they open a muzzleloader season concurrent with the archery season. And so that fouls things up. So then you look at, okay, there's a lot of activity in the woods during the muzzleloader season. There are muzzleloaders going off. What kind of an effect is that going to have on the elk to go and hunt them the week after the muzzleloader season closes? You know, are they all going to be more pressured? It's the last week, so people have been there chasing them first part of archery season, now the muzzleloader season, and then you throw moon phases into all of that and it just it can be really tough in Colorado. That muzzleloader season in the middle of archery season fouls up a lot of planning in Colorado. Now with that being said, I've heard of people that have hunted archery during the muzzleloader season. Never saw a muzzleloader hunter, never heard a muzzleloader go off. I have Talked to other people in Colorado that during that week it was a sea of orange out there and there were muzzleloader hunters everywhere. So I think some units get hit harder by the muzzleloader hunters than other. If you're hunting one of those units that doesn't get as much muzzleloader hunting pressure, I think you're still okay going during that season. So all of that being said, I'm just I jumped out on Elk 101 and is looking at the calendar. We do a, a moon phase calendar every year for September and October, and then we talk about which weeks are going to be best to hunt. This year, it's it's really, again, you know, that muzzleloader season I think is the 12th through the 20th in Colorado, which is the absolute premium week when it comes to moon phase. The new moon hits on the 17th or 18th. You've got the fall equinox on the 21st or 22nd. So that 12th through the 20th is absolutely the peak week for elk hunting this year, but it coincides with in 2020. 2020. Yep. Yep. So looking at 2021, it's almost a flip. You've got the full moon hitting on the 20th, which this year, 2020, the new moon hits on the 18th. Next year in 2021, the full moon hits on the 20th. So moon phase wise, it's almost a flip. So that last week of the season in 2021, you're looking at the, you know, the 20th through the 30th time frame. Typically is good. Bugling action is going to be good. You're after the muzzleloader hunt. But in 2021, you're basically dealing with a full moon almost that entire time Um Early, you know, I think it opens on the 4th, so early down there, 4th through the 11th, you're hunting before the muzzleloader season. Uh, you've got the new moon on the 6th, so moon phase-wise, it's good. The problem is it might be just a little too early. So I guess for me, if I'm looking at it, if I'm anticipating muzzleloader hunting, is the the pressure from that's going to be high, and I want to avoid the, the black powder season from the 11th to the 19th. The moon phase is not going to be good the last week. Uh, it could be hot early, even though the moon phase is good. I would either go before or after. And if I had to just throw a dart and pick one of them, <sighs> <laughs> it's tough. I it's tough. You, usually, I can you know usually it, one of them jumps out and says, "Yeah, this this is a better choice." I don't know that there's a better choice in 2021. Yeah. I think that any of those three time periods before the muzzleloader season. During the muzzleloader season, after the muzzleloader season, I think any of those 10-day time frames are going to be a toss-up in 2021 in Colorado. So here's what my answer would be in that dilemma. And I don't know if this
0: person is a resident or a non-resident. I'm going to assume they're a non-resident. But if they're a resident of Colorado, uh, that might be the only place they apply and hunt. So my alternative might not be applicable to them. But if you were a non-resident... I would buy a point in Colorado in 2021, and I would apply for a general tag in Wyoming. And if I didn't draw that, I'd buy my over-the-counter tag in Idaho. And then I'd go pick the best dates and not have to worry about the best dates of the season being conflicted with bundle loader hunting.
1: Yep. This year, 2020 in Colorado, it's it's an easier decision. Yeah, uh, muzzleloader runs 12th through the 20th, I think. You've got the new moon, basically that entire 12th through 20th time frame. Moon phase is great. Fall equinox hits right as soon as the muzzleloader season ends. So that week's going to be a really good week to hunt. I think I would take the chance of some muzzleloader pressure and hunt at least the second half of that week and then hunt part of the next week after the muzzleloader season ends. That 20th through 27th time frame, the moon is still good. The elk rut's going to be in full swing. Temperature should be dropping. Um, So I'm leaning more towards the second half of the season in Colorado in 2020. uh, It's a little bit, it's a lot clearer of a picture when you're looking at that moon phase calendar and the muzzleloader season this year. Um, I'd probably, if I had 10 days, I'd probably hunt the 17th through the 26th in Colorado this year. Um, 2021, it's it's ugly enough that I might even consider taking that year off from Colorado, like Randy said, and, and looking somewhere else for an over-the-counter hunt or a general hunt. You know, Montana, general tag, Wyoming, general tag, Idaho, over-the-counter tag. Um, you're just able to better use... The calendar, the moon phase, and the fall equinox in 2021 without that muzzleloader season messing things up. Yeah. And you and I know that a lot of archery hunters, this is going to sound like blasphemy,
0: but (laughs) there are some people listening to this who aren't, you know, they're kind of weapon agnostic, if you want to call it that. They'll just go whenever. Some of them are probably saying, well, in 2021, why don't you just go in the muzzleloader season? Yep. Which would be an option, but we we know that sometimes archers are that that would be blasphemy <laughs> to say I'm going with anything other than my bow. They won't go with a rifle. They aren't going with a muzzle loader. They're going with their bow. So I fully understand
1: that, but that would be another option. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a great week of hunting in 2021. That 11th through 19th time frame should be really good from you know moon phase leading up to fall equinox, everything. And again, I have not hunted Colorado during the muzzleloader season, so I can't speak to what kind of pressure it is. If you're only hearing two or three muzzleloader shots go off during a week of hunting and there's not that much of an increase of pressure at the trailheads, no worries. It's just, you know, it's like an archery season. And here in Idaho, there's a grouse season, you know, so we hear 410 shotguns going off every once in a while. We hear a rifle going off Sighting in, yeah. you know, bear hunting. Bear season's open with uh, any weapons so I mean, it's not like it's just pure quiet out there, and all you hear is elk bugling everywhere with no gunshots or vehicles on the road or anything. You still have to deal with that. So, I think it comes down to yeah, to the pressure. Go pick your what you think are the best
0: dates. I know you're flipping the coin a little bit, maybe on dates in
1: 2021 but mostly just make sure you go elk hunting. So that leads to another question here. Uh, Somebody else asked uh, uh, another question. When selecting a unit to hunt for an elk hunter who only has a few years' experience, would you pick a unit you've already hunted even though you only found one elk? You found sign every day, or would you pick another unit and start a new adventure in brand-new country? basically would you rather hunt a unit you know the landscape even though it wasn't real productive or would you try another area these are all over-the-counter units for whatever that's worth Hmm. for me
0: it's i i can look in my rearview mirror and tell you what i did and what i should have done uh i i was struggling to find out my first I've told this story so many times people are tired of it but my first six seasons I did not kill a bull elk when I first started elk hunting well I thought it's because of where I was hunting or I didn't have enough gadgets and doodads so I would start bouncing around all over the place and I never stayed in one place long enough to learn what elk are doing at certain times of the year because it, it's like oh I, I went over to this mountain range now I got to relearn the roads and the topography and everything else it was like hitting the reset button every time and not giving myself the opportunity to actually start learning because there's so much you can learn about how elk use a landscape you understand Once you understand that landscape, that becomes the constant. And the variables you're starting to identify are how the elk are using that landscape at certain times of the year. And I never gave myself enough time to do that. So in retrospect, I wish I would have picked an area if I was in an area. And I went to many areas just like this person where I found a lot of sign, but I wasn't finding elk. So I knew elk were there, but I just didn't have the experience and understanding to know where to find them. Uh, I wish I would have stayed in the same place because I probably would have started learning habits and patterns that I could have applied when I did start going to other places. So I would answer that question by: I would stay in that unit if there are elk there, and you're seeing a lot of sign. I would stay there and start learning how the elk use that landscape, especially after the second or third year, you're starting to get pretty familiar with how the land lays, where the hunting pressure is coming from, where the roads are, where the public private is, all these things that could affect where elk move disturbed or undisturbed. And you'd start learning, oh, wow. In September, they're up there. In November, they're over here. Huh. Well, why? Why? Well, because of weather, maybe, maybe because it's feed, maybe it's because all of a sudden rifle season opened and they're responding to that intense hunting pressure. There's all kinds of things you'd learn about that because you've kept the biggest variable that we often face, i.e. the landscape. You've kept that constant by staying in the same place for a couple of seasons in a row. So
1: that's how I do it. Yeah. I th- I think my initial thought is completely opposite and that doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but, but, uh, and I guess there's a couple of things that I would, I would need to know, uh, additional information before I threw it out there and said, this is exactly what I would do. But, um, if I hunt for a week and I only find one elk I'm moving. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. And, and there's probably, you know, he said he was found sign every day. How fresh was the sign? Um, how much pressure was in there? Was there a reason you only found one elk? Is Were you hunting during the rut? Were the, you know, was it during a bugle season and you only heard one elk bugle in a week? I'm going somewhere else for sure. Um, Is it because there are wolves there? Is it because there's too much hunting pressure? Is it because you hunted the first week of season and nothing was bugling yet? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But if I'm hunting during a time when I should be finding more than one elk, um, I would say that if you're in a good area, even if you don't know the landscape that good, and even if you're a fairly new hunter, you should be able to find more than one elk in a week. So my first thought is, Go somewhere else. Go somewhere where you can find elk and hunt elk because if you're spending seven or eight days looking for elk, you haven't even got to start hunting them yet. And I want to go someplace where I'm going to find elk faster so I can spend those seven or eight days hunting them. With that being said, there are some areas when we're talking over the counter units where. The elk are there, but the elk know how to play the game. And it's going to take a few years of learning that landscape like Randy was talking about, to be able to learn what the elk are doing, to learn how to hunt them. And that's not going to come quickly and easily. But I my my first thought is there are other areas where you're going to find more than one elk in a week. And especially for a new hunter, you know, you might spend seven years in that area finding one elk and the next year you might find six elk and the next year you might start learning a little more, but you aren't really starting to hunt elk until your third or fourth season in that area. Um, I would rather get that experience in an area where you know there are elk and you're able to hunt them and make some mistakes. And then once you learn how to hunt elk, go back and hunt those places that are a little harder. So for a newer hunter, um, I would probably say find new areas. Find an area where you enjoy it, where you're into elk, and then spend your time learning that area. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm I'm good with that. No, and that's I I agree 100 percent with what you said. I think my my uh, my reaction to that situation might just be a little different. Um, and it, again, it could be a difference of are we talking rifle season versus archery season. Okay, yeah. And if you're finding sign every day in rifle season, keep going back. But if you're finding yeah. sign every day in in the peak of archery season and you only hear one elk bugle, go somewhere else. So I think it really depends yeah. on a couple of factors there. Cool. Well, this person is I think if they
0: were running an investment portfolio, they'd be considered a contrarian based on the question they're asking. <laughs> and I think I think it's a really good question, and it is this. With all other things being equal, i.e. vegetation, habitat, terrain, water, etc., and let's just say that you know the wilderness area is heavily hunted because everybody thinks it's a popular place to go, do you still consider the wilderness area because you will, you know, the, the whole get away from roads thing? Or would you mark it off your map and look elsewhere?
1: Man, I don't know if I understand that question completely. All things being equal, so meaning out of the wilderness as opposed uh, to in the wilderness. So if yeah, in the wilderness, it's, just, it's this is just yep. arbitrary
0: administrative boundary. And but I, and I I think the person has. a a really cool point here and i'll use a wyoming example where we went in a place where there's a wilderness area and we knew we couldn't go in there because we're non-residents so we started hunting along the boundary like within a mile or two of that wilderness area and it is identical the terrain looks the same the habitat looks the same but it it was an area that residents could pretty much just go I I mean and there were a ton of camps in the wilderness area and we took advantage of elk getting pushed out of the wilderness area and now again this is a rifle season so this might be different um but i i guess my answer would be it depends uh but it's certainly not a bad idea to think about is if everybody's going to point a, yeah. I'm going to point B or C is getting kind of my, my answer. And, and we proved it. We uh, Marcus ended up shooting a bull. I had another couple close encounters and we were talking to some people who were in the wilderness area and they're like, man, there's so damn many people or this or that or, and we ended up being right outside the wilderness area, and I don't know if it was just the weather came in and caused them to move a slightly lower or what, or if it was the amount the fact that there was more hunting pressure in the wilderness area than outside the wilderness area uh, and we ended up filling one tag and should have filled two. so it probably depends on the circumstances, but it's I think it's a worthwhile consideration,
1: yeah, and I you know I guess I don't really even. Worry about whether it's a wilderness or a non-wilderness. You know, obviously in Wyoming you have to because it's illegal for a non-resident to hunt in the wilderness. But if I'm looking at Colorado, Idaho, Arizona, you know, things like that, I think my first thought is wilderness areas give me more options to get away from people. And so I might be inclined to scout that or research that or hunt that just based on that. But the second I get back in there and realize that there's a bunch of people and it's heavily hunted, I, I don't I don't look on the map and say, okay, I have a choice between the wilderness area and the non wilderness area. Um, yeah, that's that's just an arbitrary line on a map to me. I'm looking at. Pressure, And I'm trying to get away from pressure. So if, if there's more pressure in the wilderness than outside the wilderness, I'm outside the wilderness, but I'm not looking at it as, you know, I have to choose this green section that's wilderness and this blue section that's not, it's, I'm just trying to get away from the, from the pressure. And that might be hunting off the highway instead of driving a gravel road for 30 miles and going in seven miles on horses and finding out there's 20 camps in this meadow, um, yeah, it's, it's I don't I don't use wilderness as a factor when I'm looking at an area to hunt necessarily. Yeah, me me either. And
0: I would say if people saw some of the places I hunt in archery season, they'd be like Newberg. What what about this sanctuary? This roadless <laughs> area? Stuff? Look, I, I'm an equal opportunity guy when it comes to to elk in in the rut especially they don't really care about those boundaries they care about where the cows are and the cows care about where's their good feed and they don't care if it's in a roaded area or a non-roaded area and (laughs) i mean like when you came to montana and we did that archery elk hunt were we ever in a spot that didn't have motorized travel no and there was roads and trails and atv trails everywhere but that's where the elk were.
1: So that's where yeah. we hunt it. And there were no people there for the most part. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and again, there's so many factors. You know, we, we were hunting a road system and we didn't see hardly any people. Yeah. But there were grizzly bears everywhere. You know, you go, you go to an area where there's no grizzly bears <laughs> and there's roads everywhere, you're going to see a lot more people. So there's just so many factors that kind of determine that pressure. And, you know, in Wyoming it's yeah. the it's the non-resident non-wilderness thing that kind of determines that pressure that you know a lot of residents and a lot of non-residents with guides go into the wilderness thinking it's off limits to non-residents and sometimes that stacks more people in that wilderness area and you can hunt right off of the main road outside of the wilderness area and find more elk so <laughs> yeah I and mean, I, I think the what's being pointed
0: out in our responses there is in the rut, particularly don't get yourself hung up on this whole idea of roadless and sanctuary areas. The bulls are going to throw caution to the wind and they're going where the cows are and the cows are going to be where the food is.
1: So yeah, later when, and the the cows are going to go away from pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, not necessarily to sanctuary, but, You know they're not gonna they're gonna hang out in the same meadow and feed in the same meadow where there's twenty horse camps. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all things all things being equal, I don't worry about anything other than I want to get away from pressure and I want to find the elk. So yeah, and that's a huge difference between how that happens in September versus how it happens (laughs) in
0: November. absolutely I, I, I always try to emphasize that is the time of year that you are hunting makes such a big difference because elk are behaving well, at least bull elk on public land are behaving completely differently in September than they are in November so yep but so we we always got to add one fun question to the mix <laughs> and this is this one uh, I I don't know that I've ever heard it to this degree, but I get what he's saying. And it really has nothing to do with tactics but or strategies. And he says, you always hear the guy who shot a spike and claims he got 350 pounds plus <laughs> of meat off that spike. So my question is to you guys, have you ever weighed the elk you pack out and the meat after it's processed? And the answer is yes. Yes. And, we actually did a video on it two years ago, and we put it up there, and it generated a lot of interesting comments. Uh, we, our buddy, Bo Beatty, who has the llamas, the beauty of the just what's required with llamas is you got to balance each side of their, you know, the pannier on the right and the pannier on the left has to be really close in weight. So you got to weigh them. So that gave us the chance to weigh These quarters and the head and the and the you know the trim and all the other stuff. And suffice to say, this was a four and a half year old mature bull elk,
1: and it did not. All those pieces did not weigh over three hundred pounds. So in the in the University of Elk Hunting (laughs) online course, I have a full module on um tracking and blood trailing. And one of the chapters in there is on the anatomy of elk. And so we talk about you know where the bones are, where the vital organs are, all of that. And then the next module, the entire module is on packing an elk. And I spend the first chapter of that module just talking about what the weights that you can expect are. And so I went to a game processor, a butcher here locally that does a lot of wild game animals. And I had him provide me with the average weights of everything they brought in. He also happened to have an average five-point bowl hanging there that we were able to actually, you know, it was their hole. And we, we literally dissected it. So, I mean, we took meat out of the ribs. We took the front quarters off weight them and everything. Mm-hmm. And so those numbers, a front quarter with bone in average throughout an entire season this is for bull elk. So this is spikes all the way to mature elk. The average was 36 pounds for a front quarter with the bone in. And out of that, you got 28 pounds of meat off of a front quarter. So boned out front quarter, 28 pounds. Hind quarter average with bone in was 66 pounds. Hind quarter boned out was 58 pounds. And then all the miscellaneous meat, this is getting everything. The neck meat, brisket meat, meat in between the ribs, the backstrap, and the tenderloins was 56 pounds. So if you add those four quarters and that miscellaneous meat up, that's an average of 228 pounds. So 228 pounds of meat on average. So is it possible (laughs) to get over 300 pounds of meat on an elk? Yes, I've seen it. Not a lot, but 300 pounds of meat on an elk is a big, mm-hmm. mature mountain bull. It's one of those elk that, that hits the ground. You walk up on it, and you're like, my gosh, look at the size of this thing. It's huge. After you've seen 20 elk on the ground, you still look at this one and say, this is one of the biggest elk I've seen on the ground. Then you can get 300 pounds of meat off of it. What that translates to is if you are packing elk out of the backcountry, and you leave the bone in And you put a hind quarter and a front quarter on one pack. So you're packing half the elk. And then you split up the miscellaneous meat with each other. So you have two people that are packing that elk out. I don't know how many stories I've heard from people saying they had 180 pounds on their back. Or they packed an elk, 205 pounds of elk, 11 miles back to the trailhead. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, if you leave the bone in on an average elk and you pack half of that elk back out, you'll have 130 pounds on your back. And you will probably stagger most of the way back under that load. So we have weighed our packs. Um, I had a pack one time that was 156 pounds. I thought for sure it was 300 pounds. It was crippling. It was not fun. The heaviest pack I've ever packed out and laid was 180 pounds. And it was two and a half miles. It was downhill the whole way. And when I got to the bottom of that, it was, I'll never do that again. My back is killing me. And that's when I was younger. Um, There have been maybe five times that I've packed more than 140 pounds. And it was not fun. I still remember every one of those packs. And only one of them hit 180 pounds. And it literally was way too much. Like, had to have help standing up using trekking poles and just literally putting one foot in front of the other on fairly flat ground. So yeah, I think you know you you weighed it, you did the video on it. Um, I did a bunch of research on it, and the fact is yeah. I, 225 pounds is probably the average amount of meat you're gonna get off of a bull elk. A spike, probably 180 to 190, a mature six point, probably two hundred and sixty to two hundred and eighty. Yeah, we
0: that's out on our YouTube channel, and it. I, I this person's comment about the 350 pound spike, it just makes me <laughs> laugh because I've heard some of those same things. And as far as pack weights, I'm just getting smarter. I someone asked me this the other day of what's the maximum you'll pack out in one weight 80 pounds. I just It's too hard on my body, my knees, my ankles, my back, my hips, that I would rather make one extra trip and uh, just. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people can, if you talk about people who get hurt, some sort of injury they have as the result of, (laughs) you know, I blew out a knee or I messed up an ankle or i did whatever my back now i'm going to the chiropractor i'm going to physical therapy i'll your body it's not lineal it's exponential the stresses on your body and the likelihood of some sort of injury
1: as the weight goes up well and and then you I'm, i'm not doing that And then you add age to it and it goes up exponentially, you know, you're, you're coupling the exponential there because it's, yeah, the older you get this, the smarter you sometimes should be getting because yeah, it just takes longer to recover, you know, even without an injury, it just takes longer to recover from, from that excessive physical exertion and chances of getting injured go way up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I went to Idaho
0: Falls yesterday and bought a llama. <laughs> you did what? <laughs> you bought a llama?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I went to Idaho. I bought a llama ah, yesterday. Man, I've been, you and I have talked <laughs> yeah. a few times that I need, we need to get Bo on the podcast because I have a whole bunch of questions to ask him to determine whether I'm a yeah. prime candidate for a couple llamas. So what, uh, what'd, you name, what'd you name your new llama? Well we, we haven't
0: named him yet. Gerber bought the naming rights from Bo. So they're going to hold a contest to to name this llama. And I asked Bo, I said, well, what do you call him right now? He's three years old. Well, we call him Mac Daddy. I'm like, "Oh, how did he come up with that name? Well, his mom is named Stevie Nicks. And I'm like, oh, like Fleetwood Mac Stevie Nicks? He's like, yeah. I'm like well, I wonder how Stevie Nicks would feel knowing that there's a llama named after her. Um, but so he said that that's kind of where we got the Mac part. And he said we called him Daddy because he's just big. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this dude is only three years old, and he's taller than I am, and he already weighs 365 pounds. He's almost 50 inches at the spine, and Bo says he's going to gain about another 60 or 70 pounds, and grow another inch or two and I and uh <laughs> so I, i'm gonna yeah. have i'm gonna have a great big old llama and then i'm gonna rent three, three more and i don't know if bo is willing to sell me one every year and uh i'd like to have my own herd of four llamas and i told him you know i'm interested in them being being used all summer so i told him I'll let him use them in his yeah. summer pack trips, just to get him in shape, keep them in shape. And so I, I know because of friendship, he's kind of doing that. And the fact that we only live two and a half hours from each other, but when you, it's back to your point of as it age, you know, this exponential problem with age, I'm 55 and I started using llamas three years ago. And it mm-hmm. is, it has changed like where I just drew in Colorado, there is no way I would go in there without llamas. I'm gonna be over 11,000 feet. I'm gonna be seven or eight miles back. Not a chance I'm going in there without some way to extract an elk if I get get lucky and tag one. I'm not carrying one out on my back for seven <laughs> or eight months. I'm, I'm, I'll admit it. I'm I'm a
1: wuss, man. At this point, I'm not doing that. Hey, you're you're uh, not a you're not a sniveler though. No, you have a complaint and you found a solution. Right, so. Exactly. So,
0: uh, yeah, hauling out those big loads. I, I get that some people got to do it once in a while, but I'm not doing it anymore. That's what llamas or horses or what it, goats or whatever
1: are for. So you're you're 55. Yeah, you're using llamas. You've talked earlier about looking back and, you know, being able to make decisions off of looking back in the rear view 10 years ago. Do you wish you would have had llamas 10 years ago? Yes. If I would have
0: had llamas 10 years ago, the places I would have made more out of some of the tags I had because I wouldn't have had this concern because I think every hunter has this ethical concern about, if I shoot this thing, can I get it out of there in time without it spoiling? Especially if there's two of us, say, say you and a buddy go, what if you shoot two of them? So that forces you to hunt closer to trailheads, closer to roads. Just, I mean, you, maybe you say, oh, I'm only hunting two miles away. Well, at age 45, if I would have been aware of what highly trained, well-bred pack llamas, not the llama that's out in your neighbor's pasture with their pet sheep. I'm talking like real pack llamas, caralamas. If I would have known that, Corey, oh man, I just now I think about the places. Even with some deer hunts, some of the things I would have done. So
1: live and run. Yeah. See, and there's there's such a difference between hiking with nothing on your back and hiking even with thirty pounds. Yep. You know, you start talking 80 or 100 pounds, it's a completely different story. But you can go a lot harder and a lot farther with no weight on your back than you can with even just 30 pounds. You know, after 10 miles or 12 miles and all day hiking, that makes a big difference. And then you do that for seven straight days or you do it for the entire month of September. I know how I feel at the end of September after packing out, you know, 7, 8, 10 elk on my back. I know how I feel. And the yeah. thought of using a llama even for nothing more than just packing, packing our camp in and setting up and then packing the elk out, you know, just that. But that, I've got a, a whole bunch of questions for both. So I think we need to get him on here because it definitely has has my interest peaked because there are places. And for me, it's not as much the, the spoilage of the meat. I'm pretty confident we can take care of the meat and get it cooled down and it'll be fine. But it's the matter of coming out eight miles with a whole elk, with two guys, maybe three guys, knowing the strain that's putting on our bodies, knowing that we have another tag to fill and we have to go back in, wore out and tired. If we can go back in with with yeah. three or four llamas and hunt and know that we're going to be able to come out without a heavy pack on our back, that opens up not necessarily new areas, but it opens up, a, it almost changes the style of hunting you can do. Yep. Yeah. It it doesn't it for me. If we have two tags,
0: instead of having you know, if you're back there quite a ways, you if you have a string of llamas, you can haul out two elk on your way out. Yeah, you got to load your camp and stuff on your back, and the llamas carry the elk. But think about how many times you've lost one or one and a half days of a hunt because hunter number one shoots an elk, and it's all a hands on deck to get that one out. Totally, and. So you you lose one or you know at least one day, maybe one and a half to two days retrieving somebody's elk. Well, if you can just hang it around your camp in the shade and keep it cool and and keep it from spoiling, you can keep hunting that day, and the next day, and the next day, and know that it's all coming out at
1: one time. Yep. Well, just with and. One, one person can bring out a string of llamas. So, you know, in our situation, if we go back in deep and Donnie and I are hunting and cameraman John's there with us, Donnie shoots an elk on opening day, I'm telling him, let's load up the llamas, you take them out, and I'm going to stay here and hunt, and it's not putting an extra burden on him just to walk out without anything on his back and take the meat out and get it, you know, to the processor or wherever we're going to hang it, and then come back in with the llamas. I still get ton ton a day, so I don't lose that day of hunting. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, you pack your own elk out, you know, on your back type of a thing. You spend the next three days packing your own elk out and I'm going to keep hunting. You know, it just, it opens up, I think, more opportunity for places, for saving your knees for more years of elk hunting, for more chances of being successful. You've got my, my, my biggest concern is maintenance. I just I grew up around horses and mm-hmm. I know what horses are like to have to care for throughout the year and <laughs> use during the season and so those are. I've got some questions for both. Well, I think
0: someone who does as much antler picking as you do <laughs> in summer backcountry hunting, your llamas. If you own llamas, they would get a lot of exercise throughout yeah. the year. I think some people. They own them. They they lay around in the pasture all summer, and then they expect this llama to just pick up and start carrying a hundred pounds. Well, that llama not had a chance to get in shape and stay tone. You know, its its body tone isn't good. It'd be like if you took a fat accountant who eats too much Dairy Queen out from behind his desk. Speaking of, you know, a personal <laughs> experience here. I said, guess what? you're going to go on a backpack elk hunt for the next week. I'd be dead before I even got two miles from the truck. So llamas are kind of the same way. The other part where it's really helpful for the places I hunt, and this is mostly Montana, Wyoming, and parts of Idaho, is I get a little bit unnerved if we've got elk hanging in grizzly country for very long. I want to get them the heck out of there. Uh, and I, uh, <laughs> The, probably the most unnerving times for me when I'm elk hunting is we shot an elk yesterday, we quartered it, we hung it, we took the first loads out today, we're going back in tomorrow to get the rest of it. My no. head's on a swivel in grizzly country. Ins- yeah, I, I go in with a shotgun. I don't, <laughs> it's like, if this is going to be a close-range encounter, I got bear sprint, and on my second trip back in, I'm carrying a 12-gauge. <laughs> uh, I know some people are like, why 12-gauge? Well, two purposes. One, I can shoot the grouse, and two, that's a way better close-range close, <laughs> close range defense mechanism for me than a handgun or a rifle. Yeah. But uh, the point of that is, is, When I can just get it all out of there, like we have when we've had llamas, it's one less concern I have about, one, losing some meat to grizzly bears, having an encounter with a grizzly bear and someone getting hurt, but also just the headache. If you get in an encounter with grizzly bears and you got to report it to the authorities and everything else, nothing good comes of a human grizzly bear encounter. So how can I avoid that? Well. Llamas are one of the things. Maybe I manufactured in my mind, but I have a lot more comfort with llamas that we're getting out of there or we're going to spend less time chumming for grizzly bears because we can load it up and get out of dodge. Good stuff. But uh, when I talked to Bo yesterday, when I was buying this llama, I told him you had a bunch of questions. He said, well, have (laughs) them I said, "Well, here's what I'd like to do. If Corey has these questions, I bet you the audience has these questions, and you should be on the podcast." He's like, "Okay, I can do that. I can't do it next week, but I can do it the following week." So perfect. He, he said he'd love to do it. So awesome. I asked him how the llama rentals are going for hunting season, and we'll get an update when we have him on the podcast. He said, "Well." Normally it's kind of slow until the tag results come out. And once the tag results come out, he said, I get booked up so quick. So my point to that is tag results are coming out. If you're interested in using llamas in these this Rocky Mountain area, Northern Rockies area, and renting them from Bo at Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas, I'd get on the phone
1: sooner rather than later. Yeah. That probably, yeah. I... Man. So the area we were going to go this year in Idaho, we were thinking about riding motorcycles for part of the way and going in there, it's probably, it wouldn't be efficient to use llamas because it's so far in there. And then we're going to Oregon, which I would never subject a poor llama to hunt Roosevelt elk with us in Oregon. (laughs) But, But man, it gets into some of the rifle season and late season stuff. It just... There's so many opportunities, but then like you said, the the place that we were hoping to draw that we didn't draw in Wyoming or, you know, general tag in Wyoming, but the place we were hoping to go is grizzly country, but llamas work great there. Um, or we typically hunt in Idaho, they would work phenomenal. So yeah. Yeah. I I can
0: do my over the counter hunt in Idaho. I've already told Kurt from Rocky mountain hunting calls. I asked him, I said, you got an aversion to llamas. <laughs> he kind of paused, like, what kind of stupid question is that? You mean they're going to carry my, all my stuff for me? I'm like, yeah. He's like, <laughs> you're crazy, man. Yeah. Like, okay. Just to make, sure. <laughs> make sure. So We're, we're going to use them on the Idaho hunt, uh, the Wyoming hunt. I'm going to go into some, I'm going to be in the thick of grizzly bear country. So, we're going to be going in there with llamas. Uh, and then, when I do my Colorado hunt, I'm taking llamas into that. Like I'd explained, there's no way I'd hunt that, you know, without llamas or horses. And from there, I have to go to New Mexico with our sweepstakes winner who drew an amazing tag on the first time he ever applies in New Mexico. He draws his wow. first choice of a hunt. I've been applying for for years <laughs> and I've never <laughs> drawn, uh, but it's in a wilderness area. And in New Mexico, uh, in that region out of Albuquerque, they'll give us a film permit in a wilderness area where some, some regions won't. Uh, so I'm, I'm hauling those llamas down there and we're packing those llamas or those llamas are packing us into the wilderness area <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not packing those llamas they're packing our stuff so man that's gotta be a long drive with a trailer full of llamas it is that that's the one challenge you know and you gotta stop and let them out to stretch and do their business and water them and give them a little feed every six to seven hours so it, it does slow you down for sure but it sure is nice when they're just walking along behind you and kind of having their good old day and you don't have anything but an empty pack on
1: your back and they've got everything else. It's like, all right, yeah. You know, Bo's llamas packed out Donnie's elk when we hunted Wy- or uh, Montana last year. Mm-hmm. And I can't say I ever heard them make the sound you just made. Really? No, I don't mm. think I have. Is, is that the sound they make? No, well, no. Sometimes you, when they're just when they're in a
0: good mood and they love to pack, so you'll hear this like mm,
1: mm,
0: mm, uh, it's almost a cadence that one of them will get into, and then they'll stop and then they'll get back into it. And so interesting. Yeah, if, if you do them enough, you'll you'll hear some of them making this like. Humming noise. (laughs) To me, it sounds like man. He'd he'd whistle if he could, but he can't. (laughs) No whistling llama. Yeah, Uh, there you go. I'm sure if John Prine was still alive, he could come up with a song about a whistling llama. But I'll have (laughs) I'll have to write my own lyrics to it. But I
1: can't. uh, I can't wait. Someone else is going to have to sing it. (laughs) <laughs> i can't can't wait to hear the whistling llama song uh, well anyhow
0: uh i think people can expect sometime in the next two podcast episodes that we'll bring bo on and he'll talk about all these things i i think tons of people have questions about llamas i i know that just because when they see him on our show i get inundated with questions about are they low maintenance high maintenance Yeah. You know, do they spit out everybody are they stubborn and ornery are they and most of that is just misconceptions of people who've had an experience with an ornery old pasture
1: llama, yep. not a true pack llama. So. Yeah, and Bo's such a nice guy. That I can't wait to pin him down and yeah. pepper him with a whole bunch of llama questions. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, hey, Corey, we've kept people quite a long time. Yeah. And we didn't even times. get
1: through. Been some, four questions, maybe. Yeah, they say there's been some good questions, so definitely keep those coming for us because it gives us stuff to talk about that is relevant to to what you want to hear answers to. So, and obviously, yeah. it's, and, it's uh, Randy and I. So there's there's rabbit holes. There's no questions on here about llamas, but. Somehow we, we spent 20 <laughs> minutes talking about llamas and we're going to do a whole podcast on them. So you can see where your questions yeah. lead. It's uh, just give us something to start talking about. And, we'll take it from yeah. and so people know how, how
0: this works is when they send that stuff, you and I get the email and I have this folder. And when we text each other and say, hey, you're ready for a podcast next Tuesday, we start going through the list of questions and we sh- kind of email each other back and forth to formulate the list of what we think is relevant, that we think is common, not just to the questions we get on the Elk Talk podcast site, but you and I have other platforms that we get a lot of feedback on. And so we try to formulate the questions to be something that's relevant
1: to what we understand the audience is, is trying to, yep. to learn. And there's great question. I mean, a lot of these are things that Randy and I would just overlook and not even think about that we take for granted. So it's, it's great to have them asked so we can stop and think about it and and provide an answer. So please keep them coming. Don't hesitate. If it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we obviously can't answer all of them. We get, I don't know, what do we get? 10 a day probably at least. So, you know, a hundred a week, something. So we, yeah. we can't answer yeah. all of them, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully that there's enough similarity between some of them that we're answering multiple and we answer one of them. And um, don't, please don't take it personal. If we don't answer yours, um, we just, we do our best. Yeah. And, and if we don't answer yours, it might be because we found
0: a derivative of it that's similar yeah. that maybe came in three months ago. And there's a group of them that are kind of similar. So we'll paraphrase the questions uh, in some instances. And then, uh, you know, the the one thing that I think you got the same email the other day, two days ago, that of our pledge that we would pay $20 towards the first 500 uh, RMEF memberships under the new sportsman's membership category they have – There's only 36 of those vouchers, if you want to call it that, or we're only 36 people away from reaching the 500. So after that, people are going to get to pay full boat. I. Isn't that. Was that the number one that was 464 or something?
1: I don't know. I thought it was less. I thought there were only like 20 left, but. Oh, really? Oh, you might be right so but anyhow by the time time this episode hits they might all be gone but there might be the mm -hmm. last 20 still left so don't delay yeah so you go to rmef.org
0: forward slash outtalk right yep that'll take you to the link that'll or if you can't remember the url go up there and they now have their membership levels and on the on the one that uh is uh Well, I think they actually have to use the URL,
1: don't they? Yeah, they do. Yep. Yeah. So rmef.org forward slash elk talk. And, you know, I think when Randy and I first agreed to this, we thought, well, we'll probably get 20 or 30 people that'll take advantage (laughs) of it. And, you know, you, you punch it in on a calculator now and we're close enough that let's just go ahead and fill those last 20 spots and Randy and I can write the check and we, uh, We we support 100% the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And when they presented to us this new platform, membership platform, that was directly uh, related to public land access and opening up access for elk hunters, uh, Randy and I, without question, said we want to get behind it and help promote this and support it. So uh, we're excited to write that check on behalf of... Elk Talk podcast listeners who take advantage of signing up for that and and add their support to something that's very close to our hearts. Yeah, I'm. I,
0: I'm right. Exactly. That that's the way I'd word that, Corey. I, uh, I'm excited that so many of our listeners yeah. took advantage of it. That, that's the part that is exciting to me. Is wow, how many people decided. I want to do more for elk and access and habitat and all the things the elk foundation
1: does. And yeah. they ponied up and took advantage. And there's of a lot of people who are, I've had life members email me and say, Hey, I'm already a life member. Is there anything I can do to, to be involved here? Is, can I sign up for the sportsman's level membership or, you know, what can I do to, to help, to add the support, public land access and uh, all those we've just sent straight to the elk foundation said contact them because i know they will have a plan in place to allow you to be involved so if you are a life member and want to be involved in this get a hold of the elk foundation um if you're already a member they can just you know if you sign up for sportsman they just add it on Mm -hmm. another year so you can still support the the public land membership drive and it's uh it's just awesome yeah well Corey, i really appreciate your time today likewise and i appreciate the time that everybody's given us to to listen if i can make just one more plug for the big promotion we have going on at elk 101 right now we are giving away and you should yeah we're we're giving away an opportunity for me to hunt with someone this fall and uh, i mean that's really it it, the, the prize isn't getting to hunt with me the prize is me getting to hunt with someone else, and it's those, those opportunities are so incredibly rewarding and so much fun. Uh, they're they're definitely nerve wracking, not knowing who the winner is going to be and who are getting to spend that <laughs> week with. But without fail, uh, it's always worked out in a very positive and rewarding way uh, for me, and I just I love sharing elk hunting with others. And whether it's on the podcast, you know, any other platform, but this is more special because it is one-on-one out in the woods. I'm going to be five days with nothing but a bugle tube in my hand and getting to call for somebody. So just go to elk101.com forward slash hunt, and you can sign up to win that hunt. Just enter your name and email address. Uh, There's no purchase necessary, but... If you want to increase your chances, you can sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course, and you're going to get 20 chances in uh, that drawing, that promotional giveaway to win that hunt. And the hunt takes place this fall in September, September 24th to the 29th. It's on a 30,000 acre CWMU in Utah, probably one of the top five places to hunt elk uh, in Utah. Uh, Big bulls, lots of bulls, and you know, I think we talk about public land and all that. In order to facilitate something like this, we just we had to go through an outfitter and do all those things to keep it legal. So it's you know, but with that being said, we told them we're not staying in any kind of lodge. We are not hunting off of a side by side and driving around. We're staying in a tent in the middle of the elk, and we're hunting them run-and-gun, aggressive calling style. So it's going to be an incredible elk hunting opportunity that I've never experienced. So to be able to share that with somebody new is going to be a pretty incredible opportunity for for everyone. (laughs) Something tells me you're going to get a lot of interest on that, Corey. I hope. Uh-huh. I just, you know, and again, I my, I told my wife, next time I do this, I think I'm going to have people write an essay or something. So I can go through and kind of hand pick who wins. Like, okay. ideally, I would love to hunt with someone who's never harvested elk. They've been four or five times, but never have harvested an elk. Um, somebody who's ready physically to get after it and just go so we can just hunt hard all day and get the most out of this experience. Um and the other cool thing is on a CWMU in Utah, you get to choose whether you hunt archery or rifle. So you can hunt with a rifle if you're a rifle hunter, September 24th to the 29th. Um, so you can, you can bring your bow and a rifle, and we can hunt the first four days with a bow. And if we don't get the opportunities or things don't work out or whatever, you can grab the rifle on the last day. You don't have to choose. You can, you can hunt with both during the hunt. So okay. a lot of cool things going on there. Peak of the rut everything is just going to be an incredible experience and where can they sign up elk101.com forward slash hunt yep we, we keep it simple Wow, <laughs> wow. We, i get too confused if i start adding a whole bunch of letters and numbers so elk101.com forward slash hunt when are you going to do the drawing uh the promotion runs through the end of june so june 30th is the last day to get signed up and we will draw the winner i don't know how we're going to do it yet you know we've done it where we've drawn out 10 names and put the names on a target and got back at 100 yards and shot a bow and whichever name the arrow hits that's the winner uh we might just put it in a random Number generator, I'm not sure how we'll do it yet, but we'll come up with a creative way and we'll uh, be announcing the winner by July 3rd, which I think is is about a Friday? When's July 4th this year? I'm just looking on the calendar here. Yeah, July 3rd's a Friday, so got a couple weeks still to get entered in that, and we'll be announcing it and making uh, plans to go hunting. What is that, about less than three months after we announce the winner, so yeah, if you're entering... Keep that last week of September open. Cool. I suspect for that, if you were the winner, you could clear your calendar. <laughs> well, here's the other thing. We are we're, uh, we're filming the hunt for Destination Elk, so you'll be a part of the Destination Elk video series. Uh, we are paying yeah. travel, lodging, food, license, tags, everything except for game processing and transporting the game back just because that's such a wild card depending on where somebody lives if they want to drive if they want to fly um so those logistics will obviously help with but we're paying for everything other than that Uh, and then mountain ops graciously offered to premiere the film of the hunt in one of their upcoming mountain ops uh film nights and pay to fly that person out for the premiere for that film night so tons of cool stuff going on wow
0: (laughs) that 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 begs the question of why would somebody
1: not enter that totally yeah and and again it's absolutely a promotion for us to try to get people to sign up for the online course And, and you know it's not like we're out begging and scrambling but we want to give an incentive we want to give people an opportunity that they might not otherwise get um but yeah, you can get a free entry. So why would you not? That's throw your name in the hat at least and go sign up for that. But, and we we have a whole bunch of other cool bonus giveaways we're giving out throughout the promotion. Uh, member appreciation month month for the University of Elkhart Online Course members is coming up in July, and I can't say too much yet. But um, let's just say if uh, if you like free gear. It'll be a benefit to be a member during the month of July this year because we've got. I'll let a little bit out. We're giving away eight bows in July to online eight, eight bows in July just to e- uh, <clears throat> not like I no. Can. We're giving away eight bows in July to online course members, and that's that's just the start of it. We've got a lot more. We're doing uh, some live Q and A's with online course members where you know they can pick my brain live and answer it. And so yeah, tons of tons. And you know, I, this isn't, this, this is me extending my gratitude to people who have supported the online course. Um, it's just been incredible. It's been an incredibly rewarding thing to be able to to create the course and share it with others and just be able to interact with those people who are passionate about elk hunting. And so, you know, we just started looking at it and saying, I read a book that said, you know, you need to be reinvesting in your business. Uh, you need to be putting this much money back into marketing. And I really feel that what we need to be investing in is is gratitude in those members and giving back to them. So we're actually uh, launching a scholarship program for college scholarships. So members of the online course um, are eligible for their children to apply for these scholarships. And we're giving away $2,500 in college scholarships this year. And uh, just a lot of cool things that we're able to do as a way of, of giving back and saying thank you. Cool. Well, heck, we could have done a whole podcast on that. I
0: feel like I'm cutting you short. Sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no that's that's that was my uh, my shameless plug for the university of elk hunting online course and just uh we've got a lot going on a lot of cool stuff just yeah. free stuff opportunities and fun things all centered around elk hunting cool
0: well there you have it folks
1: if you don't do that you're losing
0: out we have no excuse that we could give you for why you
1: shouldn't do that <laughs> but we have kept them here for a long time. So we probably need to turn them loose and uh yep. catch them on the next one. Yep. Well, thanks for being here, folks. Really appreciate y'all. Yep. Randy, thanks. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the next one.